You're listening to Earshot from WXXI News. I'm Veronica Volk. This week, graffiti is on the rise, and Rochester is struggling to combat and celebrate its painted landscape. So it's so connected to marginalized populations weighing in on civic discourse. Plus, a 16-year-old who uses a wheelchair is fighting to force schools to have people with disabilities in mind when responding to emergencies like an active shooter. I don't want to be left behind, and I don't want people like me to be left behind. That's coming up on your local news podcast, Earshot. Support for Earshot from WXXI News is provided by Rock Vox Recording and Production, presenting Legacy Cast, audio and video recordings of loved ones telling their stories for posterity, produced in a full-service studio located in Bushnell's Basin. More at rocvox.com. Graffiti can come in many forms and can be art, vandalism, or sometimes both. That's the case in Rochester, where, as officials work to revitalize the city, some see graffiti as standing in the way, while others are celebrating it. My colleague Brian Sharp looked into this. He spoke to some artists and enthusiasts about graffiti culture, about what qualifies as art, and who makes that call. He has this story. Cities across the country and beyond have seen a rise in graffiti that began during the pandemic. In Rochester, you see it along Interstate 490 and other less conspicuous places. The taggers have mainly stuck to bridge underpasses, retaining walls, electric boxes, the usual targets. Rich Perrin oversees the city's streets, parks, and public works, which is to say he deals with a lot of the city's graffiti and has some opinions about it. The thing that we always like to stress is there's a difference between art and vandalism. Artists don't, you know, just put their name on bridge abutments or the, you know, backs of buildings. Some of them do, but what Perrin is describing is the quickly scrawled marker or signature that the city's defacer, eraser, graffiti removal team, and now the state, are working to take down. I think anytime we improve the physical environment of the city, um, the way it looks, the way it feels, then that has, that has benefits not only to quality of life, but also economic development. But the painted landscape has a role to play there too. Unlike some cities where graffiti and gangs are intertwined, here the two have more of an adversarial relationship. Rochester's graffiti scene is nationally, if not internationally, known, with a distinct style and revered artists. Artists like Range, with FUA, or the Fua crew. I started tagging and doing graffiti in the early 90s. Our generation created the defacer eraser. (laughs) The city's walls are the canvas, nowhere more so than in the abandoned subway downtown. The cavernous space, mainly beneath the Broad Street Bridge, is accessible by footpath, or a precarious climb down, or a locked metal stairway for those with the combination. Jessica Lieberman has the code. She teaches at RIT, is something of an expert in Rochester graffiti, and is working with the city on understanding local graffiti culture, its techniques, and its history. Rochester sort of developed very much a style because each one of these young kids sort of learns from these previous artists. As graffiti and street art have become more celebrated and mainstream, the subway has become a showcase. It draws visitors from around the world to see it, photograph it, paint it, and in recent weeks, a group of suburban teenagers to deface it. So now we got a bunch of younger kids 
and other people. And just because it isn't as wild as it was in the 90s doesn't mean that those rules don't apply. Those rules are unwritten, but define what gets painted, where it gets painted, and who gets to do it. Yet graffiti by nature is an ephemeral art form, and graffiti writers and artists are hesitant to call out someone for picking up a spray paint can, whether that's Range, who's 48, or Manta, a relative newcomer at 18 years old. Basically everything that I had down here was destroyed. They're going over every artist that they can find. Manta is Lieberman's daughter. We're using tag names here because some of the painting they do blurs the lines between unsanctioned in the subway and illegal out in the community. The subway has always been one of those spaces where artists will come make beautiful walls and then um, somebody will come and scribble over it. And it's been like that since people started painting here. That's a big part of the beauty of it. Plans to redevelop this space would seemingly wipe out the graffiti gallery here, but that construction won't happen for a few years. And as Perrin explains, part of the planning is figuring out how to preserve or memorialize what's there now. We're retelling the history of, of, that, of that structure as a canal, as a subway bed, um, as a roadway, um, but it's also a place for art, for muralism. So we, we are very active in ensuring that we take into account that culture um, and maintain it because that is art, it is unique to Rochester, and it's, it's part of our sense of place. It's also part of the city's very fabric because graffiti, in whatever form, is subversive speech, and that is embedded in Rochester's history. Here's Lieberman again. Graffiti is about putting your name out there in spaces that other people own, but where you live and you act and you reside, but you have no ownership. So it's so connected to marginalized populations weighing in on civic discourse and doing it in this way, which is why you can't only support the arts. You also kind of have to support some of the vandalism because often that is crying out, calling out, you know, being hurt. Clamber up on the graffiti-covered ledge of the subway and you can look out, upriver, toward Court Street, Interstate 490, and the arched bridge named for Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony, who called out in a different time and place, wanting to be heard. Brian Sharp is the business and economic development reporter for WXXI News. Hi, this is Megan Mack from WXXI, and if you're enjoying Earshot, subscribe to our other podcast, Connections with Evan Dawson. Catch up on discussions about current events, arts, politics, and interesting people. Subscribe to Connections with Evan Dawson wherever you find your podcasts. For more than two decades, active shooter drills have been a regular occurrence in U.S. schools. Students as young as kindergartners go through steps to stay safe if a shooter enters their school. But if that happens, students with disabilities could be at even greater risk than their peers. That's because they might not be able to move quickly, assume a certain position, or stay silent. My colleague Beth Adams looked into this. She spoke with one high school student who's trying to change crisis plans across the country. She has this story. Anya Herman is 16 years old. She goes to Oak Park River Forest High School in Illinois. She has a movement disability and uses a wheelchair. 
one of my scariest fears is being left behind in an active shooter situation and just being a sitting duck. In the case of another kind of emergency, like a tornado or a flood, Anya knows she has to go to a special room and wait for her first responders to carry her out of the school. But if a shooter was in the building, it wouldn't be safe to go out into the hallway. I don't want to be left behind, and I don't want people like me to be left behind. We need to be taken into account, and I want to make sure that happens. As part of a leadership project with the Disability Empower Her Network, which was founded in Rochester, Anya researched the issue. I talked to her about her findings. You surveyed educators and school administrators around the country, as well as students who identify as disabled. How common was it for them to have specific plans for students with disabilities in the case of an active shooter situation at their schools? It's not common in the slightest. Overwhelmingly, a lot of the teachers we surveyed, even in their general school lockdown plans, many of them stated that there was little to no language about what to do with students with disabilities, even in the general plan. And that doesn't even get into, is there a specific plan? A lot of the students surveyed, just the largest percentage of them just don't know if there's a crisis plan. I'm curious about what you heard from special education teachers who, by definition, work on a daily basis with students who have disabilities. It's clear that even they they don't feel prepared to support their disabled students. And that isn't even, I don't want to say it's a bigger problem because not all students with disabilities are in special education. I, for example, I'm not. But that's even more chilling. The people who, as you said, by the nature of their jobs, they work with students with disabilities. You would think they would be more prepared given their you know, training on how to work with students. Even they aren't prepared. I know you have asked this question of nearly 400 students themselves, students who identify as disabled around the U.S. How prepared do you feel in an active shooter situation? So let me put that question to you. How prepared do you feel in your high school? Not prepared at all. I am completely unprepared. And more importantly, the adults around me that are supposed to have the answers are unprepared too. It is not my job as a 16-year-old child who just wants to get through the day, pass her classes, get a couple A's, pass the AP test. I should not be worried about my safety, but I am because no one is prepared to support me in the case of an active shooter situation. You know, you see videos on like Twitter that students shoot on their cell phones and they jump out windows. I can't jump out a window. Like, what do I do, just die? Beth Adams is the host of Morning Edition on WXXI. And that's it for Earshot. Subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes in your feed every Friday. Find even more local news on our website, wxxinews.org, or follow us on Twitter, at WXXINews. Music this week from Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. I'm Veronica Volk. Thanks for listening.
This program is a production of member-supported WXXI Public Broadcasting, Rochester, New York.